following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh, Holy Father, we come before you in gratitude, humble thanksgiving, Because of your greatness, we cannot fathom your great love, your great mercy, your great grace poured out on your people. It's beyond our comprehension. And yet you're true to your word. That the same power that can raise the dead... can love us and care for us. The magnitude of your holiness is not something for us to cower at, but to bow down to. And so we do that today. Your church gathered to worship you, to sing your praise, to gaze on the Christ you sent as a sacrifice in our place. Hallelujah. For the joy of this abundant life that you've promised us, Lord, you're so very grateful for giving us far beyond our needs. More than anything, we are grateful for that gift of salvation. We thank you for your church gathered around the world today to worship you. We, in relative safety, with so many churches of Jesus Christ, worshiping in darkness, worshiping for fear of life, and yet faithfully coming to pray and sing and proclaim your word. Lord, we lift up our missionaries who serve some of those churches around the world and pray that you would uh, empower them uh, to proclaim and to serve, not just today, but every day, to fulfill their calling as they serve you around the world and use us as a church uh, to provide the support needed. We know, too, Lord, in our church that there are those who can't be here today that want to worship you. They're homebound, sick, maybe in the hospital. There are needs out there in the lives of our people that want to be here. So we pray that you administer to them today. Use us to do that as well. Provide healing and strengthen their lives. And, Lord, we pray for the nations, darkness, wars, and rumors of wars, and disease, famine. And for those suffering, Father, we pray that needs would be met, that you would burden the hearts of those of us who are wealthy to help meet those needs. And we thank you today for your word, that we get to sing the truth of your word. 
and we get to pray it, and we get to proclaim it. Pray, Father, you speak through our pastor this morning that the words he prepared to declare today might penetrate our hearts. So open our hearts, open our ears, our minds to these truths that we hear this morning. And we forever sing your praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning, uh, I want us to spend our time looking at the first uh, eight or nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want us to do it in the context of considering one particular question. And that question is this. What is it that's at the heart of Christianity? If you have to boil Christianity down to one thing, what is it? I mean, we are here today on Easter Sunday. Uh, you all look mighty fine, by the way. You've done well getting ready this morning. Put on your best. You smile. You showered. You look great. You're here, and it's Easter Sunday. That indicates to me one of a number of things. Either you're a Christian for whom these things matter, or you're someone who is associated with someone who's a Christian and these things matter, or for some reason you're just curious about Christianity, and you know this is the day that you can go and find out something about it, because this is the day when Christians gather. It's the day when Christians, particularly out of the year, celebrate, not only because it's the Lord's Day, but because it's Easter Sunday, an opportunity for us to consider the resurrection of our Lord. But the question that really matters this morning for us is, what is Christianity? There's so much confusion in our world and in our culture about what Christianity actually is. If you were to do a survey this afternoon, if you were to go out to uh, Folly Beach or downtown Charleston and survey people, just ask the question, what is Christianity? What's the heart of Christianity? You'd be, you'd be amazed at the kinds of answers you'd get. Because there's all sorts of confusion about the matter. Some people would say, well, Christianity is about, is about a family. I, I grew up in a family that were Christians. We, we, I just was raised to go to church. And so... Christianity is, is, is at the heart, it's, it's something that connects to my family. This is how I was raised. I want to suggest to you this morning that Christianity has nothing to do with your family at its heart. Some would say, well, Christianity is a philosophy. It's a philosophy of life. It's, it's a way of explaining why things are the way they are and, and why, how things go and what life is about and, and what happens when we die and how we should live it. It's a philosophy for living. I will tell you this morning that Christianity does explain explanations or does provide for us explanations for the meaning of life and for what happens after life and how we should live life. But the heart of Christianity, the heart of Christianity is not a philosophy. Some people would say, like the lady I spoke with just uh, this uh, two weeks ago, who was from another nation, a Muslim nation, and in her mind, Christianity was wrapped up with America. In her mind... America was a Christian nation, and somehow Christianity was wrapped up with America and Americans. It took a long time speaking with her. And I'm not sure that I ever fully convinced her that that's not what the heart of Christianity is. I had to begin by trying to explain to her, first of all, that the whole premise is wrong. America is not a Christian nation. If we mean by that genuine Christianity, the only sense in which this is a Christian nation is because if you do a Barna survey and you ask people what religion is your preferable religion, most people will identify what? 
Christianity, that's the only sense in which America is a Christian nation. But when you hear this morning what Christianity really is about, you'll understand why I say it's not. But in this person's mind, that's what Christianity was. It was wrapped up in being a part of this nation. Listen, the heart of Christianity has nothing to do with this nation or any nation of the world. Some people will think, well, Christianity is a moral system. It's a, it's a system of morality. It's a, it's a system by which we live. It, it tells us what to do and what not to do. And Christians are people who do certain things and they don't do other certain things. That's what Christianity is. It's a moral system. Well, listen, Christianity does give us moral instruction. Our faith does inform us how we should live. But at the heart of Christianity, Christianity is not at the heart a moral instruction or a set of moral instructions. It's not even in some sort of a ritual system. That's how some people perceive Christianity. Well, I'm a Christian and Christianity is about going to a Christian church and doing Christian things like you're doing this morning. It's about attending a service where some guy gets up and talks forever and won't shut up. And I have to sit there quietly and listen. Where else in my life do I ever sit somewhere for 45 minutes and listen to somebody talk and drone on? That must be what Christianity is. The only place that people do that kind of crazy thing. Or Christianity is about baptism. I'm a Christian because I I got baptized. and, And baptism is a part of what's at the heart of Christianity. Well, Christianity does involve ritual. It does involve worship. It does involve baptism. Baptism is a part of the whole Christian experience. But none of those things, none of those rituals are what's at the heart of Christianity. It is not a ritual system. In recent days, a lot of folks have gotten confused about Christianity. They've thought that Christianity is somehow wrapped up with a particular political ideology. It's been a problem in the last couple of years here in the United States of America. People thinking that Christianity is somehow wrapped up with what, what political party you support or what political candidate you support. It hasn't helped that a whole bunch of, of pseudo-religious, pseudo-Christian leaders in our culture have kind of pimped themselves out to candidates and made out that issue as though Christianity was somehow wrapped up with a candidate or a party or some sort of political office or ideology. But you need to understand this morning, Christianity has nothing to do with political ideology. It has nothing to do with any political party or any political candidate. None of that matters at the heart of Christianity. It's not about family. It's not about philosophy. It's not about a particular nation or a moral system or a religious system or a ritual system or a political system or even some sort of religion. None of that forms the heart of Christianity. What we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, really, is the Apostle Paul writing for us and making very clear and very plain what lies at the heart of Christianity. If you lose what Paul talks about, you lose Christianity. Because this is what defines it. And that's what we'll give our attention to this morning. Follow along with me as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James. Then He appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
from the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's with me. Whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. It's the word of the Lord. We haven't been studying 1 Corinthians, we've been studying 2 Peter, so just to give you a brief note on what we're talking about in the context in general of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this whole chapter is written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, and he's writing this particular chapter to deal with one particular problem that's going on in the church that he's heard about that needs to be addressed. And that is, there are those who have crept into the church who have subtly began to propagate a false doctrine, and that false doctrine was that there is no such thing as the the resurrection of the dead. They begin spreading the word around the church. There's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. Dead people don't rise. There's no such thing as a resurrection. Apparently, according to them, their argument was that at death, the body comes to an end and it ceases to exist and there is no more body ever to be raised again. No such thing as a bodily resurrection. Now, the context of Corinth is a Greek context, and in popular Greek philosophy of the day, um, the idea was spirit is good, matter is bad. Spirit is good, matter is evil. And the body is made up of matter, therefore it is evil, it is not good. And the whole concept of life was to get through this life and to escape from this evil matter body and begin to exist as a spirit free from this fleshly prison, so to speak. So the body is bad, the spirit is good. The whole point of life in Greek philosophy at the time was to get out of the body and exist as a spirit. And apparently this kind of thinking had begun to creep its way into the church, and some of the the folks in the Corinthian church had begun to, to believe this and to embrace it. And so Paul writes chapter 15 with one goal, and it's to address that heresy and to, to send a, a nuclear bomb to blow it up so that it won't corrupt the church anymore. And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is. And in the first part of this chapter, we get the heart of the gospel, the heart of Christianity. So let's begin in verses 1 and 2. What is the heart of Christianity? He says, now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. That's trouble for you all. The watch just fell. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which... You're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I'll get the watch so you won't be nervous the whole time. (laughs) Paul begins this whole conversation in chapter 15 with a reminder. He says, I'm going to remind you of some things. You, You need to be reminded of some things. You've forgotten some things that are important. And I need to write this chapter because I need to remind you about these things. I'm not writing you about new things. I'm not writing you about something that's novel or something that's new or something that's fresh. I'm reminding you about the same thing that I've preached to you since I first showed up in Corinth and began to preach. I'm going to remind you about something. And the thing that I'm going to remind you about, he says, is this. I'm going to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. The word gospel is not a word we use all the time. It just simply means good news. Paul says, I need to remind you all about the gospel. There's something that you've forgotten about, and it's called the gospel. There's a, there's a, a body of information that's good news, and I need to remind you about this good news. And it's not just any good news, but it's the good news. 
the grammar here has got a definite article. Paul says, I'm reminding you about the gospel. Not about a gospel. Not about some good news that, that exists a, uh, it's sort of equivalent to a bunch of other kinds of good news. I'm writing to you about the gospel. The good news. The unique gospel. The one particular message of, of good news that matters most to any person at any place at any time. And you Corinthians have forgotten. I need to remind you of this gospel. The gospel. We say, well, what makes this gospel unique? What makes the gospel unique? He tells us right after this. He says, the gospel is unique because it's a gospel by which you are being saved. What is the heart of Christianity? The heart of Christianity is the gospel by which men can be saved. That's what Paul launches right into talking about here. The gospel by which you are being saved. The gospel has the power to save. It's a saving gospel. That's what makes it unique. It is a, it's a body of information that is good news that through it and by it, a person can be saved. You say, well, what in the world's wrong with these people that they need to be saved? What in the world is wrong with these Corinthian people? What danger do they find themselves in that they need to be saved? Well, the same thing was wrong with them that's wrong with you and that's wrong with me. We're sinners who rebelled against our Creator. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul writes to the church in Rome and he says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is a simple word. It simply means to miss the mark. The God who has created us has made us for a purpose and He has set us on a course and He has set up the world around us and He has set up expectations for how we will live and honor Him and honor Him for giving us life and breath and every single human being has rebelled against Him and missed the mark, done what is evil and done what is wrong in His eyes. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul follows that up and he says this, not only have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but there's a price to be paid for that. The wages of sin is what? It's death. It's death. And he means by that not only physical death, but an eternal death, an eternal separation from our Creator. The wages of sin is death, and all have sinned. In Romans chapter 5, verse 9, he says this, Since therefore we've now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of that sin is death, and God is angry about the matter. Do you get that part? What's wrong with these Corinthians that they need to be saved? They are sinners who have rebelled against their Creator, and He is angry with them. And they're going to have to pay a price for their sin, and that price is death. Eternal death. That was the condition of the people in Corinth, and that is the condition of every person that's ever walked the planet in any nation at any time in history. And that is the problem that you and I come into this world having. We are sinners who rebelled against our Creator. There is a price to be paid for, and our Creator is angry with us. And He will utterly destroy us unless we're saved. So Paul says, I want to remind you about the gospel. It's a gospel that has the power to save you. It's a gospel that has the power to save you from the condition that you find yourself in. It is the only gospel by which you can be saved. That's what Paul argues here. He goes on to say, I preach this gospel to you. This is the gospel that I preach to you. 
The word preach just simply means to announce or to proclaim or to herald. And if you had time this morning, and you don't because the watch fell, Acts chapter 15, you could go back to, excuse me, Acts chapter 18, and you could go back and see where Luke records for us Paul establishing this church. Paul went from Athens to Corinth, and he shows up in Corinth, and he begins to preach this gospel by which people can be saved in the, in the Jewish synagogues. And he preaches it there, and he heralds it there, and he proclaims it there until they kick him out. And when they kick him out, he goes next door to a guy's house and starts preaching it there. And he stays for a year and a half in Corinth. And he preaches this gospel. He announces the gospel. He proclaims the gospel. He heralds the gospel to anybody who will listen. And during that year and a half, a whole lot of people in Corinth believed the gospel. A whole lot of people in in Corinth received the gospel and were saved, Paul says. And that's how that church got established. Because Paul went and he preached the gospel. He says, when they heard it, he says, you you heard the gospel that I preached, you you received it. And you're standing in it, and you're being saved by it. Paul lays out the whole heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity is this. It's the gospel. There's a message of good news by which men can be saved. And that good news by which men can be saved is activated in their lives when they receive it, when they stake their lives on it, and they're being saved by it. That's what Paul describes of these believers to whom he's writing. He said, you received it. You received this good news. You, you welcomed it like a, like a guest is what the word means. You, you welcomed this gospel. Unlike the many other people who rejected it, you weren't like that. You welcomed the gospel. You welcomed this good news by which you could be saved. You received it into your life. And he goes on to say, you, you're standing in it. Another way of saying that is, you, you took your stand on it. Not only did you believe the message and receive it and welcome it, but you've staked your life on this gospel. You've staked your claim to it, and you've staked yourself on it as though it's your only hope, because it is your only hope to be saved. You've taken your stand on it. And he says, you're being saved by it. That's an odd way of, of phrasing salvation. You're being saved by it. You see, when we think of salvation, the, the biblical writers talk about it in both past, present, and future. Sometimes of the biblical authors will write, you've been saved. And what they mean by that is the first element of, of being saved is justification. That is, when we receive the gospel, when we believe it, when we stake our life on it, something miraculous happens. God transforms our heart and He justifies us. That is to say, He declares us no longer guilty of our sin. No longer guilty of the penalty that's due for our sin. That's an instantaneous thing that happens the moment a person receives and stakes his life on the gospel. That's something that happened in the past for these believers. But there's another sense in which salvation is a continuous process. It's called theological word sanctification. It's simply the process by which God transforms us into the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has saved us in the past from the penalty of our sin, and He is daily transforming us Uh, into the image of Christ, saving us, in a sense, from the power that sin holds over us, to enslave us. Of course, one day, when this life comes to an end, and we stand before the Lord, we enter into glory, into heaven. We'll be saved from finality in every sense from sin, and all of its traces, to live in perfection forever with Him. But these believers, He says, you received it, you took your stand, you took your stand, and, and you're being saved by this gospel. But he adds a little caveat. He says, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Simply put, there's a kind of faith that doesn't save. There's a kind of belief that doesn't save a man, that doesn't save a woman. Just belief in facts about 
the gospel, just belief in facts about Jesus, just believing in facts about God is not enough to save. James, in his short epistle in the New Testament, says, look, you believe that God is one, you believe that there's a God? Well, hey, congratulations, the demons believe that. And they shudder. It's the kind of faith that doesn't save. You can believe in God and not be saved from your sin. You can believe in God and spend eternity with demons in hell. Jesus said that at the end, many, there's going to come a day when many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, look at all the things we did in your name. We cast out demons and we did all these different things. We did all these rituals in your name. And he's going to say, away from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. They had a kind of faith that doesn't save. They had a kind of belief that was not saving belief. Jesus tells a story in the Gospels called the parable of the sower. He talks about a sower who goes out and casts seed on soil. And some of the seed lands on different kinds of soil. And some of it uh, dries up and some of it's picked up by the birds. And some of it has shallow roots in it. And the, the sun beats down on it, it withers away. And there's one group of seeds that falls in what he calls good soil. And those seeds plant in the earth. They root down. They take root. They grow up and they bear fruit and they endure. And the whole story is a story really about what it means to have saving faith and the difference between saving faith and non-saving faith. And the bottom line of the story that Jesus tells is this. You can tell the difference between saving faith and the kind of faith that doesn't save by this. Saving faith bears fruit and it endures. Non-saving faith does not. It's temporary. It shows up for a season and then poof, it's gone. If you're a Christian here this morning and you've navigated around people for very long, you've seen that kind of faith. You've seen people for whom it seems like they believe the gospel. They believe in the Lord Jesus. They believe things. And the next thing you know, poof, they're out. Never to come back again. Evidence that they don't have the faith that saves. They they believed in vain, as Paul says here, because they didn't hold fast. So the heart of Christianity, then, is not a religious system. It's not a ritual. It's not anything to do with family or nation or politics. The heart of of Christianity is the gospel. It's the good news. And it's a good news that can save you. So if the heart of Christianity is the gospel, then what's the heart of the gospel? Now we're getting somewhere. Finally, right? The heart of the gospel is this. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Did you catch it? The heart of Christianity is the gospel. And the heart of the gospel is not a story. It's not a religion. It's not a system. It's a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. The heart of the gospel is not a plan. It's a person. To be saved, you don't have to believe in a story. You must trust in a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. Steve Lawson says, We're not saved by a plan. We're saved by a man. And he's right. Not just any man, but the Lord Jesus Christ. The heart of the gospel is Jesus Christ dead, buried, and raised. There is no other way to be saved except by him. By him. Jesus said it this way in John 14. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The heart of the gospel stands a man. God in human flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ. 
died on a cross, buried in a tomb, raised three days later. That is the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of Christianity. Jesus Christ, dead, buried, raised. He came to save us. When Jesus was born, Matthew 1, 21, it's actually before he was born, in a prophecy of his birth, it said this, She will bear a son, speaking of Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he's going to come to do something. He will save his people from their sins. He will save them. There's a gospel that saves, and that saving gospel at the heart of it is a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's come, God in flesh, to save men from their sins. This is the gospel that was preached by the apostles. This is how the, when I say this is the heart of Christianity, it's how Christianity began with the, the simple preaching of Jesus Christ, dead, buried, raised. That is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of Christianity. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and following. The first Christian sermon ever preached by the apostle Peter. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, You crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it wasn't possible for him to be held by it. The first Christian sermon was simple and to the point. Here's the gospel. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. You killed him. God raised him. That's the gospel. That's the good news that has the power to save In Acts chapter 2, further on down, in verse 32, this Jesus, God raised him up. And in verse 36, this Jesus whom you crucified. Over in Acts chapter 3, again, we hear Peter and John preaching. It's right after they've healed a paralytic. And here's what they say to the crowd that's listening to that day. You killed the author of life, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. You killed him, God raised him. That's the gospel. It's not complicated. In fact, it's quite simple. The message by which men can be saved. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, was crucified, buried, and he was raised. Three components. It's really simple. Christ, Paul says, died for our sins. Look back with me, if you would, to John chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. And let's just remember what Peter's talking, excuse me, what Paul's talking about when he says Christ died for our sins. John tells us this in John 19. So he, this is Pontius Pilate, delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus and they went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where, the city, where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and also in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, they divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who shall get it. 
But this was to fulfill what the scripture says. They divided my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to be his own and to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Christ died. He died for our sins. That's what Paul is arguing. Christ died for our sins. When you and I look at the cross, it's not just a good man dying for a good cause. It's not just a great prophet who's misunderstood being brutally crucified. When you look at the cross, it's the Son of God, the man Jesus Christ, dying for your sins and for mine. He died for our sins. Somebody had to die for our sins. If you remember the Garden of Eden, God spoke to Adam and Eve. He said, I've given you the whole garden. There's one thing you're not to do, and that's to eat of the fruit of this particular tree. If you do it, you will surely what? You will die. You will die. I will kill you. You'll die. Paul said, we read it a moment ago, Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Somebody will die for your sin." It will either be the Lord Jesus Christ who dies in your place, or it will be you. But somebody will die for your sin. Somebody has to pay the cost. That is the consistent testimony of the Scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the next letter over in the New Testament, Paul writes this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's Paul saying Christ died for your sins. When He died upon the cross, He took our sins upon Himself and He paid the death penalty that we owed. Christ died for our sins. It's the heart of the Gospel. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds, you've what? You've been healed. You've been healed. Christ died for our sins. He Himself bore our sins. It's the wonderful truth, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. The great shepherd of the sheep came and pursued his wandering sheep. He went to the cross. He paid the penalty in our place so that our sin could be paid for. He paid our death penalty so that we could inherit his righteousness and his perfect reward. Christ died for our sins. He bore the punishment for our sins. He paid the full penalty for our sins. First Peter 3.18 says he did it to bring us to God so that we could be reconciled with our Creator. The one who's angry with us would be angry no more. The one who's placed a death sentence on our lives and on our soul could justify us and declare us not guilty. 
when you look at the cross, do you see that? Do you see the bloody Jesus with the crown of thorns? The nail prints in his palms or in his wrists and the blood flowing down the cross. That's Christ dying for your sins. That's Christ dying for my sins. He's doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. He's dying that we might be saved. The heart of the gospel, Christ died for our sins, but that's not the end of it. Peter tell, excuse me, Paul tells us he was buried. He was buried. John chapter 19, verse 38 and following. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of the Passover, excuse me, the preparation, since the tomb was close by, they laid Jesus there. Jesus was taken off of the cross. The nails were removed and his body brought down. And lovingly and graciously by these men, his body was anointed with spice and given a proper burial. He was placed in a tomb. Why in the world does, does, does Paul take the time to mention that Jesus was buried? Why is that essential to understanding the gospel? Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that he truly died. And the way that you can know that he truly died is he was buried. We don't bury living people except in horror movies, right? Paul says he was dead and he was very dead. He was so dead he was buried placed in a tomb, anointed with spices, and placed in a tomb, a burial tomb. He was truly dead. John tells us that they were in a hurry to get these bodies off of the cross, to get these, 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 um, uh, these crucified people dead, because the time was of, the sun was about to go down, and it was, there was a religious ceremony that had to happen, and it was about time that you couldn't do anything, and you had to rest for a day. So they said, let's expedite this thing. We'll go over to the cross, and we'll break their legs so that they can't breathe anymore. They can suffocate. And they go to do that, and they, the soldiers realize, we don't even need to do that to Jesus. You know why? Because he's already dead. These soldiers were trained in the art of how to kill people. They knew when somebody was dead and when they weren't. And they knew Jesus was dead. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took his body down. They knew he was dead. They anointed a dead corpse. And this is important because there were people in Paul's day, just as there are people in, I, in, in our day, who, who reject the idea that Jesus was truly dead and raised from the dead. They come up with all sorts of other theories as to what really happened on that day. There's no shortage of books on what really happened on the day that Jesus died. One of the most popular theories is the swoon theory that Jesus didn't actually die. He just swooned. That is, he just sort of passed out from pain. Just went into a, a deep coma. And once he got inside the tomb, that cool air inside the tomb, and all the pungent spices that those guys smeared all over him sort of snapped him too. He unwrapped himself and he escaped from the tomb. That's a boneheaded theory. doesn't make any sense. That takes a lot of faith to believe that. He could fool the soldiers into believing he was dead. He could fool the other guys into believing he was dead after the brutal beating and torture that he'd been through, that even if he did wake up in the tomb, that he had the strength somehow to unwrap himself and remove a stone and get out. That's as miraculous as what actually happened. 
There are others who say, well, he was actually never buried. Jesus was never actually buried. His body was thrown into a mass grave for criminals, according to the Roman custom. Well, then why in the world would they put, would the Roman guards and the religious leaders put, put soldiers to guard an empty tomb that has no body and run the risk that what actually happened could happen? Peter wants to, excuse me, Paul wants to make absolutely clear. Here's what happened. Jesus died, and he was very dead, and he was buried. But the end of the story, the end of the gospel, is not that Jesus died and was buried. Because he goes on to say he was raised on the third day. A few years ago, I ran across a letter that somebody had posted online that said they'd received in the mail. It simply was, said this. It was from the Department of Social Services in Greenville, South Carolina. Any of you from Greenville? I'm sorry. Um, This is what it said. Your food stamps will be stopped effective immediately because we received notice that you passed away. May God bless you. You may reapply if there's a change in your circumstances. As I said, if you're from Greenville, I'm sorry. But you and I understand that most dead people don't have a change of circumstances, right? They they stay dead. They stay buried done a lot of funerals over the years. Pastor Frank has done a lot of funerals over the year. And, and I can guarantee you it's the same experience that he's had that I've had. We've seen a lot of people go into graves. We've never seen one come out. If we did, we'd probably be dead. It's never happened. Because when people die and they're buried, they stay in that state. Their circumstances don't change. But that's what makes the gospel the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ, his circumstances did change. Luke records it for us. Luke 24, verses 1 through 8. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But they went in. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you? While he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men, be crucified on the third day, and rise. And they remembered his words. Jesus had told them exactly what was going to happen. It wasn't until this moment that they got it. The Jesus who they saw die, who they saw buried, was very much alive. And that tomb in which his body was placed was now empty. The good news of the gospel is not simply that Jesus Christ died. The good news of the gospel is that he died, was buried, and that he was raised. Apart from the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel is not gospel. It's not good news. It's a story of a dead Savior. It becomes good news when we understand that the one who died for our sins, defeated death, rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death and hell, and finished the work that he set out to do. And that work was saving the souls of his people. Jesus Christ died, and he was raised. And his resurrection was a bodily resurrection. It wasn't, Jesus wasn't raised as some, as some ghost or some, some sort of figment of the imagination. He wasn't some sort of apparition that floated around like Casper, the friendly ghost or something. It was a bodily resurrection. When Jesus was raised, he was raised bodily. That's why the tomb was empty. And that's important. Because later on in, this, in the New Testament, later on in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, in fact, 
Biblical writers argue that because Christ was bodily raised, that's the hope that we have. We too will be raised bodily. Just as he was buried and came out the other side, so will we. Because of what he's done. Jesus' resurrection was unmistakable proof that his payment for our sins was fully accepted and the debt was cleared. That was the Father's, that was the Father's visible manifestation of his acceptance of the payment for your sin. Christ was raised. Christ was raised in bodily form and ascended back to the Father, and He stands right now very much alive, interceding for His own, praying for you, praying for me in heaven. Payment for our sin, paid in full. The resurrection, proof of it. The resurrection is absolutely central to the gospel. It's absolutely central to Christianity. It's absolutely central to understanding the gospel and to being saved. You cannot reject the resurrection of Jesus and be a Christian. You understand that, right? There is no Christianity apart from the resurrection. There's no Christianity to attach yourself to because the whole, the whole ball of it rises or falls on this truth. This gospel, Christ died, was buried, and he was raised. You remove the resurrection, you remove the whole thing, you rip the heart out of Christianity. And it no longer is Christianity, it's something altogether different. If Christ is not raised, the gospel is not good news. It's, the, it's a, a message of a dead Messiah who couldn't complete his task. He goes on in chapter 15, we don't have the time left this morning to look at it, but he goes on in chapter 15 to argue the absolute uselessness of any sort of Christianity without the resurrection. Let me just give you a couple excerpts. He says, listen, if Christ hasn't been raised, okay, the whole flow of his argument is, you dummies are arguing there's no resurrection of the dead. Don't you realize that your whole faith rises and falls on the fact that somebody was raised from the dead? If there's no resurrection, then Jesus can't be raised. And if Jesus can't be raised, then you're fools because you're worshiping a stupid religion and wasting your time. 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If there's no resurrection, then this life is all that there is. If if there's no resurrection, if Jesus hasn't been raised, then this life is all that there is. Get it through your head. If you're going to reject the resurrection, then that's the deal for you. This is all, this is it. You got 60, 70, 80, 90 years, if you're fortunate, if you stay healthy, live it up, enjoy it, get as much comfort and pleasure and joy as you can, insulate yourself from pain as long as you can, because that's all there is. That's Paul's argument. Verse 32, he says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we'll die. What a hopeless perspective on life. If this is all that there is, eat, drink, live it up, you're going to die, and it's over. But that is not the heart of Christianity. Because Christ has been raised. We, too, have the hope of resurrection. To remove that is to remove the heart of Christianity. It's a vain gospel. It's a worthless gospel. And there are those who go around uh, shelling out that kind of a Christianity without the resurrection. A guy by the name of Bishop John uh, Shelby Spong, he's retired now, praise the Lord. A few people are listening to him. Peddled himself off as an Episcopal priest and 
peddled a Christianity with no resurrection. This is what he said. Jesus wasn't virgin born. He was the product of a rape. He was not divine, but a a fallible human, a good social teacher, was married, suffered the criminal's death of crucifixion. His body was not buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, but it was thrown in a common criminal's grave. He was not resurrected bodily, but his body rotted along with other corpses. It's from an Episcopal priest. And sadly, nobody ever fired him for that kind of stuff. He continued to peddle a Christianity with no resurrection, which is a farce. It's a vain gospel that saves no one. But Christ has been raised. Praise the Lord, right? This is the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised three days later. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said it before it happened. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. How is such a thing possible? It's possible because he purchased it by rising from the dead himself. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised the third day. That the heart of Christianity is the gospel, the good news. And the heart of the gospel is that three-point message. Jesus Christ, dead, buried, raised. That is the gospel. There is no other gospel. That is the way by which you can be saved from your sins. To place your trust and your faith and to stake your life and your eternity on the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins. He didn't just die for sins in general, but he died for your sins. And he was buried And he was raised the third day. It's the only way to be saved. The rest of this passage, Paul, really what he does is he he says, here's the gospel. Let me remind you of what it is. Here's the heart of it all. And let me explain to you, in case you're still questioning it, let me give you all of the evidence. And he lays out really three lines of evidence and we don't have time for it this morning, but I'll just simply mention them. He says in the first part of these verses that the Old Testament scriptures are evidence for the resurrection. He says at the very beginning, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. You see that twice? He says, in accordance with the scriptures. Well, what scriptures is he talking about? They only had the Old Testament at the time, so he must be talking about that. And Paul is arguing, look, everything that happened in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is attested to in the Old Testament scriptures. We can know that this really happened because the scriptures told us that it would happen. The scriptures validate and provide evidence for the truth of the story of the gospel. You say, well, how does the Old Testament talk about that? Well, we could go all the way back to the very beginning. And we could see Abraham walking up a mountain with his son Isaac, right? And we can see him putting that son on on an altar in obedience to what the Lord's called him to do. And we can see him raising a knife. And then what happens? The Lord rescues. The Lord saves the boy. He provides a substitute. A ram caught in a thicket to be the substitute for the boy. It was a picture of what was to happen in the gospel. That you and I would one day be the boy on the altar with a death sentence and a knife hanging over our heads. But at the last minute, Christ would come and God would provide a substitute to die in our place that we might live. You could see it there. 
You can see it in the prophets. You can see it in the Psalms. You can look at things like Psalm 16, and you can see really words that are spoken as a direct quotation of the Messiah on the cross generations before the events ever happened. In Luke 24, verse 25 and following, we have a story after the resurrection of some disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus appears to them in bodily form and starts having a conversation with them. And they don't at first recognize who he is. And he's asking them about what had gone on and they're describing to him what had just happened in Jerusalem. And they're confused about it. And he says to them in verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures things concerning himself. Jesus walked down the road with those disciples and he opened up the Old Testament. He said, let me just show you where I am all over those pages. Moses talked about it. The prophets talked about it. It was in the Psalms. I'm everywhere. You should have no confusion about what just took place because it was all laid out for you right there. Wouldn't you have liked to have been on that, con- that conversation? The Old Testament scriptures argue for the truth of the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And finally he says this, look. He appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 others most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born. He appeared to me. Paul says, you know what? I can tell you that there's a resurrection from the dead, and I can guarantee you that there's a resurrection from the dead, because I can guarantee you that Jesus was raised from the dead, because walking all around us are hundreds of people who saw him with their own eyes. And it's as though Paul is arguing, look, there's hundreds of them. He began with Peter, and then he appeared to the twelve, and then he appeared to the twelve again, and then he appeared to 500 people at one time, and then he appeared to James, and then he appeared to all the other apostles, and then he appeared to me. And many of these people are still walking and breathing and living. If you don't believe me, go ask them. Irrefutable proof of the resurrection. This is no mania of a few zealots. This is not some figment of the imagination of some people who really just had hope and wanted to believe something so badly that they convinced themselves that it really actually happened. We're talking hundreds of people corroborate the story. Hundreds of people corroborate the story. They would say to you, if we could raise them from the dead and bring them here, I saw the Lord Jesus. I saw him after he was dead and after he was buried. I saw him alive. Eyewitness testimony of hundreds of people. When Paul's writing this, he's got a strong argument. You and I can't go find those folks, can we? If we could actually find them, we wouldn't want to see them in their current circumstances, which haven't changed. But if we could, they'd tell us, I saw him. The gospel is true because the Old Testament said it would happen exactly the way it happened. And it's confirmed by the validation of eyewitnesses, hundreds of whom saw the Lord Jesus Christ alive. Alive. The heart of Christianity is not some moral system. It's not some political ideology. It's not some some ritual that's wrapped up with what you do with your family. In fact, it has nothing to do with your family. It's not some philosophical way of viewing life. The heart of Christianity is the gospel. 
And the heart of the gospel is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, dead, buried, and raised. That's the gospel. And listen, my friends, this morning you need to be saved. If you're a human being, you find yourself in the very same condition that the Corinthians to whom Paul wrote. You find yourself a sinner who is under the destinies from the God who created you. The one who has the power to execute it. And there is no hope for you to escape that fate except that you be saved by someone else. And the only one who can save you is the Lord Jesus Christ who came, who lived, who died, and who was raised again for you. Either He died to pay for your sins or you will die and pay for your sins. Let me tell you this morning, you need to be saved. You need to be saved. And there's only one person who's qualified and who's capable. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. But the good news is, He died, He was buried, and He was raised, and He did all of that in order to save you. But it only becomes personal when, like the Corinthians to whom Paul Paul was writing, you believe. And you receive that message into your heart. You welcome it. And you stake your life on it. You abandon all skepticism. You abandon all self-effort to save yourself. You abandon all hope in your own personal godliness. And you look up to the Lord Jesus Christ and you say to Him, I have no hope apart from you. Unless you save me, I will die for my sins. So I'm asking you, forgive my sin. Save my soul. I receive you into my life and I stake my future on you and you alone. That's how you can be saved from your sin. It is the gospel and it's the only way to be saved. Is there any reason this morning why you won't be saved? Is there any reason why you won't receive that message Is there any reason why you won't stake your life on the heart of the gospel? Jesus Christ, dead, buried, raised for you. I'm not asking you to be religious. I'm asking you to believe the gospel. I'm not asking you to be a Baptist. I'm asking you to believe the gospel. I'm not asking you to adopt a philosophy or a moral standard for your life. I'm asking you to believe the gospel and be saved. Won't you do that this morning? Let's pray. If you're here this morning and this is the first time you've heard this message, maybe you've believed one of these other fallacies about what Christianity is. You've believed it was something other than what it really is. This morning you've heard for the first time that Christianity is really about the gospel, about a man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died, who was buried and who was raised for you. And you realize this morning that He's your only hope. When you look at yourself in the mirror, you understand that you're a sinner. Nobody has to tell you that. You know that. You know your own rebellion far better than anyone else. You know how you've missed the mark. And you understand that there is a price to be paid for that. Either you'll pay it or he'll pay it for you. This morning, there's no secret formula. There's no magic prayer. There's simply a heart of faith that looks up to the Lord Jesus in your own word and says, you know what? I believe. I believe that's what happened. I believe you lived. I believe you died. I believe you were buried. 
And I believe you rose again. And I believe you did it to pay the price for my sins. To do for me what I could never do for myself. And so at this very moment, I ask you to forgive my sin. I receive you. I welcome you into my life. And I stake my entire future and eternity on you. Save me from my sin. Heavenly Father, we glory in the gospel today. Thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul that we've been able to look at in these moments that cut through all the foolish things that confuse us about what Christianity is. And help us to see so clearly, Lord Jesus, that Christianity at its heart is a message of you. A person who really lived, who really died, and who really rose. Those of us, Lord Jesus, who know you and have known you for some time, we are standing on that truth this morning. We are celebrating in our hearts that truth this morning. We have staked our eternity on that truth this morning. And it's our joy to remember it this morning and to relive it as we've looked at your word. And, to, and our hearts are, are overflowing with gratitude and thanksgiving for what you've done for us. It's our joy to live for you. It's our joy to honor you with our lives. We owe you everything. But inevitably, Lord, there's in a group this size those who have never believed the gospel. Oh, maybe they've been to church a lot. Maybe they've gone through all sorts of rituals. Maybe they've grown up in a Christian family. Maybe they've lived marginally, mar- marginally moral lives. Maybe they've adopted a pseudo-Christian philosophy of life. But they've never embraced the gospel. They've never received you into their life and staked their eternity on what you've done for them, abandoning all self-effort. I pray that in these quiet moments, they would do that very thing. And they would inherit your promise that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. May they call on you in these moments, we pray. Amen.